Welcome to I'd Rather Stay In with your hosts, Megan Myers and Steffi Predmore. This week, we're continuing our series on parenting in America with our special guest, Allison Grigsby-Sweatman. Stay tuned. Do you love listening to I'd Rather Stay In and want to support the podcast? Well, now you can. Visit our website or the link in our Instagram profile and click Buy Me a Coffee or visit buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can help us cover the costs of creating this podcast. There are no monthly memberships, and you can support us at whatever level you like, whenever you like. Whether you buy us one coffee, many coffees, or simply continue listening as always, we're so grateful for your support. Hello, Megan. Hi, Steffi. How how are we? How are we doing? Are we surviving? Uh, yeah, you could say that. I would say surviving. Uh, one of the things that is helping me survive is even though I am a we have been a latecomer to the situation, but every night before I go to bed, I listen to an episode or two of my dad wrote a porno. <laughs> I love that this is like your new bedtime routine. It's like, like my little bedtime story. <laughs> like one of the most fucked up bedtime stories that you can possibly <laughs> listen to. But I am like living. But you have now surpassed me because I still have a little bit left of the last chapter of book two. And you are now on to book three. Um, but I, I, <laughs> you guys, if you have not listened to my dad wrote a porno, it's literally what it, the title says. It's literally this guy who whose dad wrote a porno and he reads, they read a chapter of it every episode, he and his two friends. And it's one of the most hilarious things you've ever listened to in your life. So highly, highly recommend it. Highly recommend. Like stupid listening. Don't, yeah. don't listen to it around your children. Obviously. No, definitely not. Please um, but <laughs> yeah, it's it started like in 2016, I think, and so or 2015 even. I don't even know. So we've been very behind, and our friend Randy recommended it to us. We listened to a lot of it in the drive from Illinois to North Carolina, mm-hmm. like peeing our pants driving in the car. Yeah, almost wrecked the car. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. Megan was afraid for her life. It was great. And so then, um, after we finished the first book, like I took a break from listening to it for a while. And then I was like, I need something to listen to because I've listened to like all my other favorite podcasts. So I need to catch up. So yeah, trying to catch up so I can be like up to date. Because apparently. But they're like on the sixth season. Right, they're so. like on the sixth book slash sixth season. And according to Brandy, by the time you get to season six, there's actually a plot. So I'm very interested in getting to the point where there's actually a plot. So. I don't believe it. I, I will believe it when I see it, but also she hasn't let us wrong in this podcast yet. So, Brandy, we're trusting you. If we, <laughs> if we listen to all six episodes of Belinda Blinked, or all six seasons of Belinda Blinked, that we will get to a, a real plot point. <laughs> yeah, highly, highly recommend. So... This week, we are going to talk about something a little bit more serious than my dad wrote a porno. We're going to continue (laughs) with our, uh, you know, we're going to continue with our Parenting in America series. So in case you missed the first episode of this series, we're going to be talking to guests whose experiences as parents fall outside of the very narrow description of what our society considers, quote, normal. This week, we're talking to Allison Grigsby Sweatman. 
a licensed master social worker, law student, and mom of two about parenting disabled children and her quest to educate on anti-ableist parenting. Allison, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I live in central Arkansas. As you said, I'm a mom of two. My husband and I um, have been married for 10 years, and my kids are Rosie and Bo. They are six and seven years old, and um, I am a licensed master, master of social work, like you said, and a law student part-time while working full-time, and I am in survival mode right now. Talking to y'all is a nice little... Um, retreat from talking about people who don't stop one of yeah. them. yeah I'm feeling this week I'm I'm regretful of that <laughs> of that part of myself but you know it is what it is um but yeah that's that's a little bit about me so can you tell us a little bit about becoming a parent and what the early years of parenting were like for you sure yeah so like I said, my kids are Rosie and Bo. They are six and seven years old, and they both have Down syndrome. And my daughter, Rosie, has a long medical history. And this is confusing, but as a lot of families who have any adopted kids will say, we're kind of a mixed bag, so just try to keep up. So um, <laughs> Rosie, Rosie, um, I gave birth to, so biologically, and then Bo, we adopted. He is older, though. But we adopted him after we had her. So um, Rosie's my first baby. She's also my youngest. So weird, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so when I was about 20 weeks pregnant with her, we found out we had the anatomy scan. Um, and we found out that she had a large hole in her heart, a diagnosis called atrioventricular septal defect or AVSD. And this is a heart defect that's really common in kids with Down syndrome. So we chose to have genetic testing to determine whether or not she had Down syndrome. And we learned that she did. And so it was like all in one week, right in the middle of my pregnancy, we learned all these things about our baby. And she was born in August of 2015. And we took her home from the hospital after just a few days in the NICU. And we were told she's going to go into heart failure. And she's going to need to be admitted again to have surgery. And so just watch her breathing, monitor like her fingers and her lips. If they become blue, if she turns blue, bring her to the ER is basically what we were told. And, and keep an eye on her. Like if her breathing becomes more labored and we were like, what? Like so we're just supposed to. packed up a ticking time bomb in your oh, yeah. car seat and said, oh, yeah. okay, congrats, have fun. Uh-huh. They were like, it's a matter of days, you know? And, and we were really fortunate. We had five weeks at home with her. I, th sometimes I think back and like I'll daydream about those weeks because even though they were very anxious weeks, we hadn't had the experience of like a long hospital stay yet. And that that was really what the first year of her life was completely marked by because five weeks later we brought her in actually for just a cardiology appointment we were going weekly because like like you said ticking time bomb for sure and um, at that cardiology appointment they saw that she wasn't gaining weight she was working really hard to breathe and so they admitted her that was in late September of 2015 and we were there for six months so she had two open heart surgeries. She spent time on a heart lung machine called um, an ECMO machine, 
which resulted in a, a brain bleed that required surgery. And at one point we overheard, <laughs> this is not what you want, um, a doctor say to a group of med students, this is the sickest kid in the state right now. They didn't know that we were her parents. and <laughs> We were standing right outside of the door and we were yes. like, seriously, can you not? <laughs> you know. Um, so that, like I said, that was very much what the first year of parenting was like for us. It was just marked by that. And um, she, she did get to come home in March of 2016 and uh, had several more medical things that cropped up over the next about year and a half. But we met them one after another. And she around two, two and a half was pretty stable medically. And that was when um, we learned of her brother and were given the opportunity to adopt him. And we did. And he's a year older than her, like I said. He also has Down syndrome. He doesn't have the the slew of medical uh, diagnoses or anything like that. Um, but yeah, they share that extra chromosome. <laughs> um, and people always think they're twins. They're one year apart. But and sometimes I tell people they're twins just so I don't have to explain our family. <laughs> you know, I'll be like, right. yes, yes, they're twins. Moving on. Um, but yeah, so that's what the beginning of parenthood was like. We we it was a wild ride. It was it was a lot. But we're I feel incredibly fortunate. I absolutely adore my children, as we'll talk more about. But um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade them for anything. I would take away the pain that they've both gone through in different ways, but I wouldn't change one thing about them. They're freaking adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, they are. Also, Bo is like hilarious. I yeah, he's just a hoot and a half. He um, is. So I, this question, this is actually not a question that we prepared you for ahead of time, but it, okay. it popped up for me as you were talking about, you know, that first year of Rosie's life, like being in the hospital and for six full months and her being so sick. Um, and it does connect to kind of what we're going to talk about later. Like, how was that for you just as adults who had to function in the world and like have jobs and make a living where your jobs um, like how how did how did that work were you able to take time that you needed and not mm-hmm. have to worry about you know paying your mortgage like <laughs> all of those things how did that function for you as parents of this very medically complex baby yeah so I left out a really big part of the story because I didn't think it would be pertinent but now it is so, now that you asked that <laughs> but okay no, no no I don't mind sharing at all um so whenever we got pregnant or I got pregnant, we didn't get pregnant. I got pregnant. Um, whenever I got pregnant, we, my husband and I were living overseas. We were, um, teacher, we taught English overseas in Asia. And whenever I was about 20 weeks pregnant, I flew home, actually just me. I flew home just to go to a family funeral. My great grandmother passed away and I came home just for that. I was going to be here for about 10 days. And while I was here, I was like, oh, let me just go to the doctor in English, you know, because I had been going, I actually had one doctor's appointment in Thailand and one doctor's appointment in China. And um, it was my 20 week mark. And I was like, let me, let me get the anatomy scan in the States while I'm there. And so I actually never went back to Asia. Um, And so my husband spent another month there kind of like wrapping everything up, teaching all of my classes for me. He was teaching two class loads to kind of wrap up the semester um, and he rushed back or rushed he was there he was back here a month later and so all the diagnoses and everything that happened that month of my pregnancy I was relaying to him with a 13-hour time difference between us it was so 
it was so hard. Um, but he got back, he, he got to the States in May. I had been there since early April. Um, and pretty soon after that, I got a job as a resident director at um, a university that knew us really well we had worked there right after we graduated um and they knew what we were expecting by by the time i had applied and went through the application process um at this school we had told them you know we're expecting a a surgery uh within the first few months of our daughter's life you know and we told them everything we knew and they still hired me and we were so fortunate with that um they let me do a lot of work from the hospital I basically, I was a supervisor to six RAs. So we lived in a college dorm. Rosie, those five weeks that we brought her home, it was in a college dorm, which I love. I think about those memories (laughs) and I'm like, that is so bizarre uh, when I think about where we are now. But um, so yeah, it was a frenzy. We literally, within the time that we found out about her diagnosis and realized we, like I couldn't live in the middle of Asia anymore because um, I needed, we needed to be close to a children's hospital, you know? within that time between that time and her being born we had to find a place to live we had to find jobs all of that and so um, pretty quickly after we got the job as a resident director for me my husband got a job as an ESL teacher on the same campus which was really great Um, so he just went back and forth from the hospital and I basically stayed at the hospital the whole time I would come in to my job maybe about once a week and do a meeting with my RAs and um, kind of put out fires from afar. We were, we were really fortunate for, yeah. in that regard. And, um, and obviously, uh, well, not obviously, unfortunately, but uh, we, had, we had medical insurance because I got that job so quickly. So that was, we were very well taken care of. And um, it was, let's see, in March, whenever we got out of the hospital, we realized we had to be closer to the hospital. So we, because of how fragile Rosie was, and so we got an apartment really close to the hospital, and my husband got a job um, at the Apple store. He worked there for a few years um, (laughs) right after uh, she got out of the hospital, and it was kind of just like, we just have to be closer so that if if she were to, again, go into heart failure, um, or if we were to need, need medical care, quickly we could get her to a place that knows her really well so um, we did a lot of making huge changes in our lives just to kind of make sure she was well taken care of you know and we were really fortunate and and privileged and to be able to do that um, and to have medical care throughout all of it but um, you know I think about now I I work full-time now um, and it would be very much a different situation, you know, like I have to look at my company's policy um, to to see kind of what it would look like if Rosie were to have another extended hospital stay. You know, there are a few options, but, um, you know, I would use up my medical leave and then it would be like, what do we do now? You know, um, right. so, yeah, that's very much a reality to me, even though it's not something we've encountered yet. I have a lot of friends who've had to do exactly that, though, for their yeah. kids. I'm sure, mm-hmm. yeah, because I was just thinking about, like, how quickly that FMLA will <laughs> leave will go. You know, mm-hmm. you maybe get mm-hmm. maybe 10 weeks at the most, yep. mm-hmm. uh, and then you're like, oh, uh, SOL. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Yeah. That, thank you for sharing that. Of course. That's, yeah. That, that surprise question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So our society treats disability diagnoses, especially in children, as one of the most terrible things you can experience as a parent. 
Can you share how you processed your daughter's diagnoses in particular and how you were impacted by the reactions of those close to your family and maybe even some of your family members? Sure, yes. Uh, This is a huge conversation in... I can talk specifically to the Down syndrome community on a on a personal level, and then I can share like what some of my friends and clients uh, who I've worked with in special education, um, kind of what they've gone through in other diagnoses. But so our diagnosis story is actually really good. We had a positive experience with a genetic counselor who I still text and send updates about Rosie um, to, and she's just phenomenal. Um, She delivered the diagnosis and met me exactly where I was in the moment, you know, didn't sort of like impose or project um, negative emotions, you know, which is, which is what happens a lot of times. My experience is rare. Um, I know more parents than not, who have kids with Down syndrome were told some version of, I'm sorry, your child has Down syndrome. They were given, uh, well, which there is no reason to apologize, you know, um, they were given super dated information about things like life expectancy and happiness. Um, it's just delivered like this agonizing death sentence, you know, and, and sort of this, um, this sadness is presumed and imposed and projected onto parents who, receive that diagnosis, whether it's prenatally or at birth. Uh, and there's, there's the, the truth is there's plenty of research and evidence showing great outcomes of things like self-perception of, of people with Down syndrome. So um, life happiness among folks with Down syndrome and just generally they're happier with their life than the average person. And um, mm-hmm. they like who they are generally more than the average person. Like these are things that we all want for our children, you know, and no one talks about those statistics. It's just a lot of, um, of the harder stuff, which honestly, a lot of the harder stuff could be dealt with, with, you know, more research um, about why people with Down syndrome are more likely to have ABCD diagnosis, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a lot that needs to change in the diagnosis experience uh, across the board, but that's what I know about specifically Down syndrome. And then we had similar things happen with other diagnoses that Rosie received. Um, and and it's, it's just, I don't know, it's hard because um, I, I think that what I wish would happen is is more or less what happened to us, and, and that is kind of follow the lead of the person who you're giving this diagnosis to, who, who you're giving this report to, instead of just presuming that this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to them. You know, it, that presumption is what makes people, I think a lot of times feel like, well, if you're having this terrible reaction, this terrible, you know, take on this diagnosis that I'm hearing that my child has now, then I must, you know, I have to feel that way too, you know? And, and of course, a lot of people are really upset, you know, Um, a lot of people do receive that. And it does feel like immediate grief. And it's crushing to a lot of people. But the truth is, on the other side of all of that really, really difficult emotion, there's a reality that has a ton of hope. And I guess I wish that professionals would maybe lead with that, you know, not necessarily give toxic positivity, support people in whatever they feel, but don't impose or project. Um, So other diagnoses look a lot like that sometimes. I know a lot of parents, though, um, who it's been very different for. I have worked with parents who have kids with um, Down syndrome, but also ADHD, autism, 
uh, sensory processing disorder um, and helped them sort of navigate the school system is what I did. And uh, in many cases, they can't access the services that they need educationally or otherwise without an official diagnosis. So unlike what I described, you know, the Down syndrome community, um, parents in the Down syndrome community experience, a lot of parents are pushing for the necessary evaluations so that their child can receive the services that they need. And, and it creates this really difficult situation where a parent is having to have this deficit-based perspective on their child because that's the language that the education system speaks. And that is not a place that you want to put a parent in, you know, but the parent knows that the kid needs these services. And so they're pushing for this child to have these evaluations um, and having to advocate in a way that no parent wants to advocate, you know? So, um, and then I know that a lot of other parents of whose kids receive those diagnoses, they're not pushing for evaluations. They might, they might be in denial, you know, they might be very much caught off guard when a professional suggests that an evaluation needs to be done. And there's a lot of reasons for that. All of them come back to ableism, societal ableism and internalized ableism. So it's a very personal individual situation. I really wish that the perspective on disability in general were um, different actually just completely turned on its head so that receiving a diagnosis wouldn't be something like that. It would be just more information about your child, your precious child, so that you can help them um, and help raise them as best as possible. Because really that's what's happening. You know, um, a diagnosis is a list of symptoms. And so if you just look at those symptoms as presentations of who your child is and find ways to support them best, I think that is a much better outlook than this sort of labeling and deficit-based perspective that is often presented whenever someone receives that diagnosis. Well, and like you just like you just said, like it doesn't have to be done in a in a toxic positivity way. There's ge- there's genuine research that yeah. they can show you for so mm-hmm. many for so many of these diagnoses, whether mm-hmm. it's Down syndrome or others, where they can say here's the research like they don't have to present it in a very in a specific way but they can say here's the research yeah not hey here's your 10-week blood test results do you want to schedule to terminate this pregnancy like yeah oh yeah people are Mm -hmm. assumed that they're going to want to do so oh yeah for sure um so you know you you're talking about as you're talking about uh, ableism. You know you I when I when I think of you I've I've been following you on Instagram. We've been Instagram friends for a while now, and one of the things that I always think about when I think about you is how you really just you have taken up this anti-ableist parenting mantle. And I'd love to hear more about you know what was the point in your parenting journey where you really started to unpack your ableism, unpack mm-hmm. the ableism and the society around you and really start working towards anti-ableist parenting. And what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I would say that it started a few years ago. It was after we adopted Bo. I know that because adopting Bo, he's so different from Rosie and then also so alike, but but the ways that he's different from her really put into perspective like that made me confront my own ableism because their abilities are very different (laughs) and um that that was like how how I began really confronting and digging into uh, you know why am I having such grief over um 
over one child's disability being different than another child's disability. And um, that was sort of the beginning of it. And then I also started going to therapy on my own, like for me and everything. And um, that brought out a lot of things, um, personal trauma wise, that that really a lot of it came back to ableism. I didn't mention this because, you know, it's very much wrapped up in my own anti-ableist um, pursuits. I don't even want to say journey, but it, it is. It's a journey. Um, but so my dad was actually disabled. He, my dad was a wheelchair user. And so um, my, my entire life since I was 10 weeks old. So um, that not, not only am I a parent to disabled kids, my perspective as a child was framed by disability. My perspective on parenting as a child was framed by disability in that my dad was disabled. And so reflecting on that gave me a new sort of outlook on ableism and thinking about the ways that my dad encountered ableism. And eventually, um, I just knew that I had to pursue it professionally too. So I started grad school and focused all my research on parental mental health and special education. And I learned quickly and certainly that parents of disabled kids are actually doing a lot of harm to the disabled community And the deck is also very much stacked against them. (laughs) Like in terms of confronting ableism, how, how will they know how to do it unless they have an experience that is contrary to the most obvious, the most prevalent experience, unless they experience disability with new eyes, with different eyes than the rest of the world does, why would they show up and parent their disabled child differently and with an anti-ableist perspective, you know? And so um, there's a lot in the disability advocacy um, and activism community that disabled adults are re- have really been hurt by the way that they were uh, raised <laughs> by their parents and the, the expectations that were put on them. Um, it, it's not unlike, Steffi, it's not unlike just adoption. <laughs> there's a lot of mirroring, you know, in, in that. Um, and so I would say that that was, it, it kind of started in terms of like my work and what I wanted to sort of address was to try to help make that better to help parents be allies to their, to their disabled kids and the disabled community. And then by the same token, like the other side of that coin is to advocate for those parents to be supported as they unlearn their ableism and try to raise their kids best. But the reality is that parents of disabled kids have to confront systems, just the two off the top of my head are the medical system and the education system. They have to confront systems that were not built for their kids, that, that do not, that, that claim to serve their kids, but are really incredible they're just riddled with obstacles to really getting the access and accommodations that their kids need and so it's really difficult for me because the reality is how can I tell parents to dig into anti-ableist learning if they're spending literally 15 20 hours a week many of us you know on the phone trying to get their kid the services they need trying to get them in with the doctors they need to see you know it's like literally that there are not enough hours in a day you know Mm -hmm. and so unfortunately a lot of times what happens is parents have to sort of have the wool pulled away from their eyes with something really difficult like like confronting them on a personal level 
whether it's a really bad experience with a professional uh, or something. And, and they just, they might come across the word ableism and realize that, that ableism is, is what has affected them this whole time. You know, it's, it's what has been making it difficult systemically for them to just get their kid what they need. Um, and then I think that seeing it in a systemic light can often make people go inward. And, and once you start seeing it, you can't stop seeing it in yourself and in all of society. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of what made me start thinking about it. And, and from when one thing led to another, and it's kind of been what I consider to be kind of the, the core, the anchor in everything I do, like, you know, law school, I, I, I'm always thinking in, in every class I take, which is sounds silly, but like, I'm in, I'm in a criminal law class right now. And every, everything that I read, I bet you can just find so much ableism in the systems. 100%. Thinking about it right now. Yeah. My mind is like, oh my gosh, I bet your brain is just going a million Mm -hmm. miles a second. it's just the lens through which I see, I see everything now, you know, and, um, I really don't know kind of what I'll do with it, you know, but, um, it's the thing that if someone says, Hey, what's the thing that you could talk about? What could you give a Ted talk on in 30 minutes? (laughs) I would say (laughs) it's probably ableism and parenting. Um, and so, yeah. And, and I, I always want to say this, everything changed when I started listening more to disabled adults Mm -hmm. talking about ableism and anti-ableism than I did to the parents, the influencers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, And that's not to downplay people who are just sharing their experience as parents. Um, Again, a mirror in adoption that we see is like sharing your kid's story, you know, in adoption, like don't share your kid's story. It's true of, of parents who have kids with disabilities. So often they're just like sharing, like I even, I've, I've given, I've scratched the surface of what Rosie's been through medically in like just now talking to y'all. But, uh, but there was a time when I would just tell you everything, you know what I mean? Like tell you every diagnosis, everything that happened. And it's like, that's not really mine, you know, like, like it's this, it's this balance that I have to find. So all that to say, yeah, listening to activists, uh, disabled activists and advocates changed the game. Um, when I started listening to them as much or more as I was listening to my fellow parents, I think that was really when everything took shape the way that I think maybe it needed to. And I would think that one of the obstacles that has um, made it difficult for parents to be able to confront that ableism within themselves and in society is that it was not that long ago when disabled kids were like shuttled off Mm -hmm. to homes and they weren't in society. So there was a whole generation, generations and generations of people that are just missing Mm -hmm. that experience. Yeah. 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 And yeah, that's why I say like, what, how could a parent um, who finds out that their child has Down syndrome, for instance, who has never had a positive perspective or interaction or any sort of inclusion of individuals with Down syndrome in their own life, maybe when they were in school or what have you, how could we expect them? You know, like they Mm -hmm. love their kids, but nothing has set them up to parent their kid well and, and have a view of what their child is going to go through in the systems that they'll confront in the systems that claim to help them, you know? And so 
Um, there's so much there. That's why it's always an and for me. You know, I've seen mm. and heard a lot of what um, adults with disabilities say that they went through um, because of choices that their parents made. And the truth is, uh, the systems have to change. The systems that are giving the parents the advice have to change um, right alongside that uh, unlearning the internalized ableism. So. Yeah, I mean, like, I, 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 an example of that is, like, if, when we listen to autistic adults and they talk about how harmful ABA therapy is. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's, you know, if it's, I think so often that, is, that parents are told, like, this is what your child needs, like yeah. to give them yeah. their best shot. And so uh-huh. parents are like, well, I want to give my kid the be- their best yeah. shot. So this is what mm-hmm. I need to do. And yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even just rethinking, you know, I, I even rethinking. So Eden will be two next month, and you know, you go do your your mm-hmm. you hit like eighteen months and mm-hmm. two years, and you're doing mm-hmm. your well child checks, and they're asking you these questions that yep. are very clearly they're screening for autism. Oh yeah, like mm-hmm. there is this initial like in your gut of like, oh my god, mm-hmm. what are they gonna say? And you have to remind yourself like she's still the same kid exactly even if I answered all of these questions and Mm -hmm. they said you know what we think that she might have autism she's still the exact same kid Mm -hmm. that I have been parenting all along Mm -hmm. and that doesn't change anything yeah just like there and I I mean that's but that's been a process even just for me to get Mm -hmm. to from learning from you and from like you said listening to uh adults with all sorts of different disabilities Mm -hmm. and so I think it is uh something that we all have to work on and and yeah. whether whether we are parenting disabled kids or whether we have disabilities or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the the talk that you just described giving yourself, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to leave this doctor's office with the exact same kid that I came in here with. I cannot tell you how many times <laughs> I've given myself yeah. that exact pep talk while answering questions about like to screen uh, my kid for something. I mean. Oh, it's it, it made my heart sink into my stomach when you said that because that's exactly what it is. And yeah. it's so hard to have that perspective because there's just there's literally like a milestone industrial complex that, that profits <laughs> off of you being obsessed with your kid doing a certain thing at a certain time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And not having certain traits as well, you know, and I'm not saying before before um, occupational therapists come at me, I'm not saying that, you know, milestones don't matter, but there is definitely a focus on it that does not have to be quite so intense. You know, Um, I I've it took me a while to sort of confront that, too, because it's so prevalent. It's on every toy you buy. You know, it's in every every class that you're going to attend with your little one. You know, it's like it's for this age. And and there's also that that was one thing whenever back when we kind of thought that we could be the change <laughs> in, in um, a really, you know, fantastic church that we were part of at the time. Um, I, I would go to them because I felt really comfortable doing so about a lot of things. And and one thing I did say was, you know, I think Rosie is going to be in the, in the class with like, like, like if you say that this class is for the kids who are uh, toddlers and then once they can walk, 
they get to graduate to the next class. And that's the language that's used. It really is all about when can your kid walk? That's when they get to go to the next Sunday school class, the, the next level or age of Sunday school class. And I had already confronted the fact that my daughter might not ever walk and she's a wheelchair user. So what do we do with the fact that that's your measure of when she moves up? You know what I mean? And and I mean, that was a great conversation. That was a really, uh, because they were fantastic to really hear me where I was coming from with that. But all that to say, those the milestone language is really slapped on everything and it can become really hard to talk yourself off a ledge as a parent. Yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if your kids are into the TV show Bluey or not. Uh, no, I think okay, well, we've watched guys, it once. Well, you guys need to get into it because it's great. Okay. <laughs> We're slightly obsessed, but okay. there's this episode in the second season. It's called Baby Race. Mm-hmm. And oh. I identify <laughs> with this episode so much because Eden was a delayed walker. And mm-hmm. uh, in the episode, Bluey's mom is like, sees these other, this other baby that's like crawling before mm-hmm. Bluey and she's and she's walking before her and she's like okay I gotta mm-hmm. get her walking I gotta get her walking mm-hmm. I gotta do all these things and the, and she just like feels like oh my gosh she's not she's <laughs> not running the same race as these other kids yeah. and you know, she finally mm-hmm. just had to be like run your own race and she had to have yeah. like another like a kind of a veteran mom come to her and say like you're doing great like you are <laughs> doing great and so yeah. um I just I always think of that episode it makes yeah. me cry every time I watch it oh yeah um that's but, beautiful you know just this like run your own race mm-hmm. because there are so many of it's such a competition social mm-hmm. media does not help make no. parenting a competition in yeah. so many stinking ways yeah yeah there was a girl I went to high school with and like there's no malice in this story I'm about to tell you please understand but this girl (laughs) I went to high school with and I played basketball with um her kid was born around the same time that Rosie was born and at 11 months old she was catching a like a like a small like a baby size basketball and walking walking up to the hoop and putting the ball in the hoop, you oh know? And I was just like, yeah, yeah. And, okay, and don't talk to me about it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. But, exactly. but yeah. And, and again, that was something that I had to work through. Right. You know, because it was like, why is there such grief here? You know, like mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, really, really generous and as much as possible, shame free, curiosity about what comes up is key because that was that was what I had to do in times like that you know whenever whenever the milestones were you know I was seeing them all over social media and everything so absolutely so you kind of you've hinted at some of these but what are Mm -hmm. some of the biggest challenges that you face as a parent to disabled children in our society Mm mm-hmm yeah, so education is always the first thing that comes to mind. Special education is such a mixed bag in this country. Uh, it was already something of a shit show, and then we added a pandemic to it two years ago, and things have only gotten worse. Um, and I really think that the pandemic dropped the whole education system in hot water, and now we're seeing a lot of the systemic issues that cannot be ignored anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just been really, really hard on families who have kids with disabilities. It was already hard, but, um, I would also say that once I started 
understanding understanding ableism, um, I saw it everywhere in myself and in the systems around me. And it has been really hard and it continues to be hard to come to terms with the the magnitude of what needs to change because it's in it's in everything. The other day I saw a Twitter thread and a friend of mine who has a child with a lot of medical complexities, a lot like Rosie, uh, was talking about how susceptible her son is to severe complications if he were to contract COVID. And someone commented that people with kids like that shouldn't take them out of the house if the world is that dangerous for them. And I, I was so angry, of course. And I, it was the first, I've seen things like that, you know, like I've seen opinions like that so, so many times. Um, but it was just a reminder about how prevalent that is because there, there was a lot of people who were saying, you know, like taking no issue, you know, with that. And that was a really harsh way to put it, but some version of that idea exists systemically, right? In in a lot of systems, some version of we put kids who are not up to a certain par academically, intellectually, etc. We put them in a different place from everywhere else, from everyone else, from the general population. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can find reasons for that, that check out, that, that make us not look so terrible, that make us look like we're a system that's here to help every kid. But at the end of the day, exclusion and isolation is the result of, of all of that. And so this idea that there's a place we have a place for people like you (laughs) we have a place for people like your kids um and and just trust me it's what's best for them that idea is a more palatable version of that tweet (laughs) you know and and i that was just last week and i was kind of numb to it all and then that tweet sort of woke me back up but that that perspective that very harsh way of putting it really woke me back up to kind of what families like mine are facing um, because we we are we do feel even more isolated you know in the pandemic not to talk about the pandemic god we're always well, talking no, about but it but <laughs> but I mean for it's two a, years we've been hearing mm-hmm. like oh well the only ones who are like likely to die oh, are yeah. like old people and disabled mm-hmm. people and chronically ill people mm-hmm. it's fine yeah. and mm-hmm. if you're one of those three which I am <laughs> right. I'm, right. I'm like right. cool awesome uh-huh. oh, that's great <laughs> Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Just collateral damage, you know, right. or at least that's the language that's being used. And it's just, it's just the worst, you know? So anyway, I don't think that that's the question you asked me, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's that, that's one of the biggest challenges is just like those moments when I see a hot take that is so offensive and seeing how acceptable a lot of people see that hot take to be, you know, yeah. like, oh, we should just, you, like you just shouldn't leave the house I'm just like okay okay so isolation just like from the beginning of like okay the way that special education came to be in this country was in 1975 Congress found that over one this was in 1975 over one million kids with disabilities were not being educated they were being turned away from public school systems all over the country and congress found out about it and was like you know what that's not cool like that looks really bad you know and so it's just this culture of isolation this like acceptable isolation and relegation to the margins that when i when i 
realize that anew and it's going to happen again and again and again throughout my life. Um, and that has nothing to do with my kids that like, I, I think that is what I wish for parents who are raising disabled kids is that they can, they can see that shit and they can process it. They can process their own feelings toward it and they can separate that from who their children are. (laughs) You know, like you said, if someone, if someone were to give your kid a diagnosis in a doctor's appointment, you would walk out with the same kid and you, you, you should be able to access the same joy in that kid as you did before. And when I see people say terrible things like that, I had to fight really hard to get to a place where I can compartmentalize that comment from who my, who my kids are, how I am raising them, and what I am fighting for for them, you know? Um, I, I don't want to ignore it altogether and go numb to it, but I also um, can't conflate it with, like, the reality of who my kids are. You know what I mean? Totally. I do want to circle back real quick. You know, mm-hmm. We were talking about education, and um, I know – like you actually have sort of specialized in putting together IEPs um, mm-hmm. because that is such a shit, to use your own word, a shit show um, <laughs> that, you know, I think so many people who don't, uh, who have not had to have an IEP for themselves or put one together for their kids. Like I know that you've mm-hmm. helped a lot of parents put those together. Can you talk about that just real quick of like sure. that literally like, navigating education system in a way mm-hmm. of like helping your child with something that they really need is so difficult mm-hmm. that people need to hire basically a consultant to help mm-hmm. them do it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I'll say this, um, there, there might be people who listen to this podcast who are like, no, my IEP is great. My, my district is great. And I feel really heard as a parent, you know, like whatever it is. And so it's it's really tough because it's a mixed bag. Like we're talking about district by district, everything is so different. Um, and even school, down to school by school and classroom by classroom. But on a macro level, parents are really, really struggling, I think. And here's what I can say about like federal level special education law. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, which is what gave the IEP to um, kids with disabilities, said, you know, we're going to have this document that has all the services, all of the special education and related services that a child will have access to and that they are entitled to because of their disability. It's all in this document. And we'll have a team of therapists and teachers and the parents who can sit down and come up with what will give this child a free and appropriate public education. That set of laws to ensure the rights of disabled kids in education was enacted in 1990. And it had a predecessor in 1975, which I talked about before, but it was changed to the IDEA in 1990. It was reauthorized in 2004 to comply with No Child Left Behind, but no substantial updates have been made since then. So yeah, 2004. So we're 18 years out and it is absolutely a time for an update and an overhaul even. So think about what we know and and even just the societal perspectives and understanding around things like autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, PTSD, CPTSD, adoption, and everything, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of these things we have, like a lot of these, these are diagnoses that you see on a kid's IEP. And 
we know so much more about them now, but we're we're working with a set of laws that's 18 years old, you know? And so there are a lot of professionals in the system whose hands are tied by, you know, this is what we have to do. This is, this is how we can comply with federal law, you know? And so first of all, it needs an update. And then there's also so little funding compared to what Congress promised when it enacted the IDEA. It's barely 40% funded. Uh, barely 40% of what was promised has been funded. And that's atrocious. <laughs> and so many times the unspoken truth at an IEP table is that there's not enough money to give the kid what they need to to provide the service that the parent is asking for. And um, then you have professionals and administrators whose hands are tied and they're over here trying to do their very best with the funding that they have and you know I mean that's true across the whole education system not just special education so all that to say um we just have such a long way to go and I don't feel hopeless but it's just not a priority right now in Congress for so many reasons, not the least of which everything is politicized right now. We've got a whole pandemic to get out of, you know, or at least learn to deal with. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what I would say on a macro level. I always have to zoom out whenever I'm talking to people from all over the country because the truth is every every place is different. But at the very least, we should be funding it better than we are. So, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you wish more people knew about raising disabled kids? When I brought Rosie home from the hospital, I had been, the first time, <laughs> um, I had been connected with uh, a friend, a new friend of mine who had a daughter with Down syndrome and a heart defect. And I called her so emotional because I was overwhelmed by, like we said, you know, they gave me this baby and they were like, by the way, her heart's going to fail. You know, let us know when that happens. <laughs> and, I, I still can't get over that, by the way. I've been thinking about that for weeks. <laughs> it was so bizarre. Um, so I called this this person who, she was a stranger at the time. Honestly, we had a mutual friend. And I called her like, you know, here's what they told me. I know that you've been through it, you know, and just asking for something. And then I had all these big picture questions, too. And she said to me, the future is bright for people with Down syndrome. And I, I cannot tell you how many times I have come out of such a dark, dark place, not to be just like completely, I don't know, allegorical, poetic here, but I've been in really dark places. Um, and whenever, like I said, I confront the reality of kind of uh, what people say about, about my family and my kids and how they think of us. And the future is bright has been something that has gotten me out of those dark places because it's, I believe it. I believe it. Like I can't say that and not believe it. Um, I, I can't promise that these systems will change even in my lifetime or even in my kid's lifetime. But I really believe that the future is bright one way or another um, for people with Down syndrome and for the entire disabled community. And I, I just not just because I have to believe it <laughs> to keep going, but I, I do believe it. And then also there's more joy than sadness for most of the parents who I know. Um, and then the sadness that we experience is largely because of these systems that I've been talking about and the stigmas that I've been talking about. And those, like I said, have nothing to do with your child. So, you know, I, I always, we always like to try to 
have a little bit of a takeaway, something that our, our listeners can do, especially when we're talking about a topic like this. So what are some of the ways that our listeners can support anti-ableist parenting in America, both you know on an individual level and on a macro level, um, whether or not they themselves are parenting at all, much less parenting disabled mm-hmm. kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on an individual level, I think that learning about ableism alongside your learning about lots of other isms, <laughs> um, which, which I think is, is something that um, thankfully a lot of us are doing, um, but understanding how a lot, not a lot, how all oppression is connected and intersects in many different ways um, and add add ableism to that list of things that you're learning about to to the list of populations who you're realizing have been shortchanged, you know, throughout history, um, add, add the disabled population um, to that. Um, oh, I don't have a list right in front of me, but follow disabled creators on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. Um, yeah, I can probably get y'all a list if you want to put them in your show notes. But yeah, um, yeah, and so and then so that's on an individual level level. And then assuming that you do have ableist tendencies and try to root them out, assuming that you're an abled person. Um, and as far as raising raising kids um, who are not disabled, um, I get that question so much, <laughs> like more than uh, more than any other, I would say. Um, I have a lot of books that I can also recommend. I can get you that list, but then um, raise your kids to see disability as a difference and to like really see it um, and as something to be accepted and accommodated and not feared or ignored. I think that the, um, oh, just to, just like, don't, don't ask any questions, you know, don't say anything. Um, that's something that I, I see a lot and that I know a lot of parents tell their kids, um, you know, for fear that their kid will offend someone, you know. Um, but I think that allowing kids who don't have disabilities to remain curious is something that um, will be helpful rather than fostering this sense of sort of fear in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on a, a little bit of a more macro level, if you are involved in your local public school system and there are any meetings that you can attend that are maybe a school board meeting or something like that, um, or, or if you're already participating in those, just ask yourself, where is the representation for special education issues in this? Anytime education is spoken about, ask yourself, what about the kids who access special education or any type of special education services, why why aren't they even part of this conversation? And you can do the same in every other system, but I know that education, like I said, is where I've spent most of my time. Ask the people in charge of not just those spaces, but other spaces you're in, whether it's your church or whatever, why there's not a wheelchair ramp or whether or not they can accommodate various disabilities. Um, it's the kind of thing ableism that once you start seeing it you see it everywhere you see it in yourself you see it all around you and so notice it be gentle with yourself and never stop learning love that how can our listeners connect with you and follow you you can follow me on instagram that's probably where i'm the most active although 
law school has taken me away quite a bit. <laughs> um, but I am Allison GS underscore LMSW. And um, that's where I connect with people most often. I'm also on Twitter. And links for that can are going to be found in my Instagram bio. And we will make sure to tag yeah. Allison in our Instagram posts and also uh, link in the show notes for you guys as well. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Allison, yeah. and, you know, sharing your story with us. I, I learned, I, I've been learning from you for years, but I learned stuff tonight. So I just really appreciate you, you know, coming yeah. on and having this conversation with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So we end each week with what's bringing us joy. So Allison, you go first. What's bringing you joy this week? TV. The ability to just fully check out. (laughs) Um, I've needed it so much. And specifically, we watched the entire show Succession over the break. Have y'all seen Succession? No. 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 Oh, it's very good. It's very, very good. Um, It's a lot of dark humor. Um, I like that. Which I love. Yeah. And we've also been watching a show called Righteous Gemstones. Have y'all heard of that one? No. What's that on? Oh, I think HBO. I think it's also on HBO. I think it's also HBO. Yeah, that one's good. And then also Search Party. Um, oh, I watched it. I haven't finished yeah. it, but. This last season is super weird. We're not done with it yet. But, um, and then also I've just been going back to my comfort show is New Girl. Like, oh, I just, yeah. I just am always like, I can just watch any, any New Girl episode and just laugh. So. Uh, did you know that in every episode of New Girl, there's a reference to a bear? No. I just learned this recently. I learned it like a couple days ago, yeah. Well, Taylor this... texted me and she said, well, now I have to rewatch. Yeah, I was going to say, start from episode one yeah, of, yeah. of season one now. Oh my goodness. Thank there's you for this. Like, there's either a mention of a bear or mm-hmm. a picture of a bear. Well, and you know, um, Josh Gad plays the character Bear Claw yes. in that one season. <laughs> well, he comes back in another season, but yeah, he... Um, that's really funny. I bet that helps them make all those references. Oh my goodness! Thank you for that. I love it. <laughs> That's like in because uh, Psych is like similar with its pineapples or something for that one, right? Oh really? I think so. There's like I, I'm pretty sure in Psych it's like there's a pineapple in every episode or something goofy like mm-hmm. that. So <laughs> that's like another one where you're like, oh, I can watch uh, have a little scavenger hunt while I watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, now now you have your uh, your non law school homework of finding all the bears. Right. <laughs> <laughs> can't wait sorry i didn't get my homework done i was looking for bears that's very had important to restart new girl from the beginning <laughs> yeah. uh, Steffi, what's bringing you joy uh so we've watched encanto approximately 800 times at our of house course. same but the soundtrack just still brings me joy every time it's so good it's just really excellent. The songs are catchy, mm-hmm. and uh, I just I love I love them. Uh, we do have a beef with our friend Ade, who only gave Encanto three point five <gasps> out of five stars. And I was like, I do not have enough time in the day to explain <laughs> why you are wrong. It's so <laughs> lovely. It's such a good movie. I know Kathleen and I were giving her, we're razzing her in text and she was like, she's in this long text. So she's like, I, 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 you know, I looked at these things and I, and I was like, girl, we still love you. <laughs> we all have things that we can be wrong about. It's okay. 
my like, to- oh, my, like toxic Enneagram one was coming out because I was like, you're oh, wrong. Yeah. I'm wrong yeah. about this. I was like, no, it's okay. Uh-huh. We can all have our own opinions about this movie. <laughs> but, but it's I not an decided- opinion. This is objective. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I just decided that she has like less trauma in her life than the rest of us. So that's why she doesn't like it as much. I know, my, boss, my boss watched it with his his kids. I don't th- I don't think he finished it yet, but he was like, he was like, I don't know. I don't know about it yet. And I was like, oh, you got to watch it like five times immediately in a row and just really let that generational trauma uh-huh. bubble up in you and yeah. then it'll really feel it. Uh-huh. <laughs> really sit with each character each individual exactly. time, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he like gave me this, I don't think he knows what to do with, to do with me, but that's fine. Yeah, I have a friend who she doesn't have kids and she's she also like she hasn't seen Frozen for crying out loud. Like she hasn't seen very many animated movies at all and I get the sense that she's kind of anti that for herself but she also is a person who checks the bill billboard hot 100 every morning and we don't talk about Bruno was number four this morning <laughs> she sent me a screenshot and was like okay maybe I need to watch it and I was like yes you do so it's taken over gosh I love it so much do you, did you guys have you seen where in when they're singing we don't talk about Bruno when it's uh, Dolores is singing and like you can see Bruno in, on the balcony in the house in the background yes like yeah along and there's like there's much debate in some of the Facebook groups I'm in as to whether it is him or um or it's the cousin the uh whose name oh my gosh is escaping me right now but the shapeshifter yeah shifter cousin uh-huh. um but I think it's actually Bruno so anyway okay. <laughs> Megan was bringing you joy um delegating cooking dinner mm. yes uh, my kids are old enough now that they can cook dinner together nice. um, with either very minimal or no assistance from me. Oh, I thought you were going to say fighting. Uh, <laughs> no, of course not. Um, <laughs> I mean, actually, it's, it has been minimal fighting, but uh, overall it hasn't been too bad. But I can just be like, you, I have them pick out what they're going to make, and then they are in charge of it and I don't have to worry about it. And even if I like do have to give them instruction, mm-hmm. like yelling from the other room or something, it's so nice to be able to do that instead of right. like having I mean, to do that's it That's about myself. what you have to do with your husband too. So honestly, <laughs> like they're on that's the same true. level. I did have him make dinner tonight and it took so long. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I have something I need to be at and do at 7.30, my dude. I got things to do. Well, I, pr- I purposefully have him only do, like, Home Chef ones because they have the instructions and everything's, mm-hmm. like, already there. And it tells you at the bottom, like, how long this recipe should take you to make. And he had already, like, hit the time and he hadn't started <laughs> cooking it yet. He spent all the time chopping, so. Bless his heart. Edie has, like, reached the point where we you can give her very, very simple instructions to do things. And, like, you kind of have to repeat them 87 mm-hmm. times. Like, <laughs> take this bowl to daddy in the kitchen. Okay, take it to daddy in the kitchen. Depending on how far you are from the kitchen, you might have to say it a few times because she gets distracted. But I'm also like, ooh, am I on the – I I am I'm well on my way to having a kid who can do the dishes. This is great. Mm, I am yes. all for this. Yes. <laughs> Emptying the dishwasher, I almost never have to do it anymore. Ooh, that's great. Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's nice. Luxury. That's the worst part. Yeah. Oh man, excellent, excellent job all around, ladies. I know. I know we were 
trying to think of what, what our joy was, but we did. <laughs> I mean, every job. week's a slog, so <laughs> yes. you gotta have those little things. <laughs> gotta have that little spark. <laughs> well, next week marks a huge milestone for our little podcast. It is our 100th episode. We cannot believe it. So until then, we're going to have something special for you guys next week. But until then, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and listen to us on your favorite platform. You can also follow us on social media at IRSI Podcast or send us an email at I'd rather stay in podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Bye.